Anderson Pettit, U.S. Content Director at Money 2020, co-founder and hype man for the VSUM community, and most of all, back in the seat as your unqualified host. We are back, folks. I done went to Europe. I visited some family and did that whole Money 2020 Europe thing in Amsterdam, and holy shit, that was a wild one. I'm coming back exhausted, but with sheer excitement. Vegas is coming up fast, and and we're rolling. But first, for fintech's sake, this season of For Fintech's Sake is supported by our friends at NeuroID. Think about NeuroID basically as bringing body language into the digital world. Someone fidgeting in their chair is like someone taking too long to fill out their social security number, or maybe they're switching tabs like crazy. The digital world has tells the same way the real world does, and NeuroID is that person at the casino watching the monitors making sure no nefarious business is going down. NeuroID's website also just got a little bit of a facelift, so jaunt over there to neuro-id.com to check it out and take a look at the demo page. You can not only request a demo from a real human, but you can watch a video of a demo and see what you're getting yourself into before you have to talk to an actual human. I promise they're good humans and not the worst of the worst that we usually think of as salespeople. They're actually fantastic humans and fun to be around and fun to do demos with. I've done one. So with that, on to the episode. We're coming back this week strong with a chief compliance officer's dream episode all about cannabis and crypto. Not all about, but a lot about. We also talk about lawyer stuff. I learned more from that part than maybe any of the rest. Finally, I'll tell you who it is. We've got David Ikina Adams, lawyer, venture capitalist, entrepreneur, and all around fascinating human. David played a big role in the payment system for ease, building that in the early days, the largest cannabis delivery company in the world, as you may know. So with that reminder, one more time, go to neuroid.com to learn more about what they're up to. But without further ado, on to this conversation with David Ikina Adams. Hear ye, I should press record, make sure it's still working. It is David E. Keenum, motherfucking Adams. It's good to have you here, man. How it's are great, you? It's great to be here, Zach. Uh, thanks for having me. We're in like a nice, very comfy studio setting, not in a Zoom. So, you know, yeah. I, I, I I feel privileged. It's, it's I, I'm trying to maintain eye contact with you, but it's like, <laughs> yeah, oh we, man, you have a, should, the rest of your that? body exists. <laughs> Well, we, we met Monday, so I guess I, let's, let's fill folks in on, I mean, we'll get to, you know, who the hell you are and whatnot, but let's mm-hmm. fill folks in on the week we've had. We're sitting here, what is it? It was Wednesday, right? Today is Wednesday, April yeah. 20th. Yes. Uh, I believe it's a holiday. Yeah. <laughs> I believe it's a holiday, folks. Let's, yeah. We're having a little fun out here. It's uh, 10, 12 a.m., so we haven't celebrated the holiday yet, but- Speak for yourself, but uh, uh, yes, absolutely. We might. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll, we'll ease into that later. Ease into that. We'll get ease into Love that it. and ease into that. All right, so punts. So it's New York FinTech Week. David and I kicked it off with- A uh, fireside chat. Fires. There definitely was no fire, uh, but- I feel like we brought the heat. It w- <laughs> okay, potentially. potentially. <laughs> there was a chat. There was absolutely a chat. We can say that. Do, do we need to like work on the word fireside chat? Like, Do you think that the world needs to stop calling that? Yeah, if I mean, no fire. what's what's it? Is it is it Roosevelt? Is that what's what's the origin of fireside chat? Literally, it, no. It's idea. a president. I know really that for sure. Yeah, I like, think that's how they addressed the nation in a very folksy 
manner. Um, yeah. Was it potentially Roosevelt due to a potentially an inability to stand up? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Am I thinking of that right? Wasn't Franklin Roosevelt the one that? He, well, yes. Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Yeah. Um, yeah. The term fireside chat was inspired by being my own Jamie here. The term fireside chat was inspired by a statement by Roosevelt's press secretary, Stephen Early, who said that the president liked to think of the audience as a few people se- seated around his fireside. Love it. I am a, I'm a trivia champion. So um, yeah. clearly, yeah. clearly <laughs> HQ trivia is you're still getting on every day at 8 PM. Um, so yeah, we had a, we had a chat without some fire. We talked about crypto and cannabis inside of the Barclays building uh, at rise, which was hilarious. I thought you yeah. know, on a lot of levels. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I told you, but there were some compliance concerns about our conversation uh, that, that we got through. <laughs> always. Yeah. Always. Yeah. yeah. Well, you and I speaking yeah. is probably <laughs> compliance should be concerned. Um, and then we opened, we went into the party, we had some beverages mm-hmm. and now I haven't mm-hmm. seen you for like what? 24 hours. Yeah, or so. I haven't seen almost. you since the conference yesterday. So like we're long lost friends now when all the fintech people get together you know uh it's fireworks so i'm happy to be here in uh in in new york um you know with with all of the accoutrements that, that comes with them exactly so tell the folks about yourself yeah um even actually so you know we only had what 30 minutes on monday i want to go all the way back i want to go back <laughs> back to the youth back to the youth that was david sure somewhere in a corner coding something i imagine or no not even at that point coding something i mean yeah what? You would have been like reviewing legal briefs at the age of six, right? You, you would, you would think that, that, <laughs> that I was destined to become a lawyer, but, uh, you know, it was mostly watching a lot of episodes of television. Um, okay. but was but, it like Boston legal? You know, I dabbled in Boston legal, but with like Perry Mason, like if you really want to go back, yeah. uh, but no, I'm, I, I grew up in the Bay area in the East Bay, uh, Richmond, California. And, um, you know, had a, had a pretty normal, fun, loving life of a young child who loved TV movies and baseball. Um, mostly. And that's so you know. wholesome, David. <laughs> <laughs> and then we had lollipops yeah, at the end yeah. of every day. Go, go A's. Um, uh, and, uh, eventually I, uh, you know, I went to UC Davis for undergrad. It's, you know, just outside the Bay area. Um, and found my way to law school. Uh, the main reason I went to law school, not because I was reading legal briefs as a youth, but, uh, it, a kind of a silly reason, frankly, as, you know, uh, as, as many of the people who graduated, uh, right during the financial, uh, uh, crisis and getting a job was like a thing that probably wasn't necessarily going to happen. Yeah. Um, a lot of I, master's degrees <laughs> happened in those few years <laughs> fleeing, fleeing, you know, like continuing school seems yeah. like a really great idea. Yeah. And like, you know, I, 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 you know, I had like, okay grades, but thankfully for me, I very good standardized test taker. So, um, I, I, I took to the LSAT, um, scored well enough to get into a really good law school at UVA. And, uh, you know, the, the, the rest is history. And by history, I mean, I became a lawyer. I moved back to the Bay area. Uh, I started doing investigative work at a big law firm called Latham and Watkins. It's one of the biggest ones. And, uh, I what did that job. What does investigative work mean? That sounds- uh, yeah. So, I mean, it, it means, it means you do investigations. Um, so you know, you have an internal investigation or a government facing investigation. A good example might be um, there's an accusation at a company and maybe there's a whistleblower. Mm. And so the company needs to say, 
covered spaces. We we are looking into these allegations. Ah, um, unbiased so, third party. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So you hire a law firm, and if you are a very large company, it pays to hire one of the largest, most expensive law firms to do this. Uh, it helps cover you, and they can pour many, many resources into it. And then you do things. Yeah. Is so, it? Is it? No, no, you're good. It's just I, I have a lot of questions about this world, so I'm just yeah. gonna keep cutting you off. I'm sorry. Is is that a brand thing? Is that like you don't get fired for hire or for buying IBM? Is yes, that kind of like exactly. the legal version of that? It's it's that plus that the firm just has lots and lots of resources. Humans. And, yeah. <laughs> a lot of people to throw at a problem. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But it is also that you don't get fired for hiring IBM. That makes sense. Yes. That makes sense. Okay. Car yeah. Carry on. So you're doing an investigation. There's a whistleblower. Yeah. Yeah. So there's two main things that you do in like a, you know, an investigation in the modern day. You collect documents and you do document review. This is kind of the, mo the classic like uh, uh, entry level lawyer in, if you're in like litigation investigations. And then you assemble those documents, you kind of create a version of a narrative and uh, to understand what's happened. And you interview people to buttress your understanding and to learn more about what happened. And basically your goal is to just find out what's going on. Um, you know, it's not unlike a, a matter of litigation, but you're really just, it's fact-based work. You're trying to understand what happened. You have to understand where documents are being held. Um, you know, are people communicating on email, um, on Slack, in other places? Um, you see calendar invites, there's conversations that occurred. And then you kind of like, you go in and you, you ask people, ask them to tell the version of the story. Does what they told you align with the documents? Are there discrepancies? You ask them about the discrepancies. Is that, know, like that, is that what I would like? Am I thinking of that correctly as a deposition? Is that like what that would be referred to as, or is that like post subpoena? Cause you, you wouldn't have subpoena power as a lawyer, right? right. Like it's so, really just interviews. That's not a deposition, but it, the kind of context of what you're doing is similar. I would say a deposition is much more adversarial than like an uh, investigation yeah, yeah, yeah. interview. Okay. Um, a the term interview is quite different. Yes. Yeah, that's yes, fair. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. A deposition is more of an official proceeding as part of a litigation matter um, where you are, there's usually someone on the other side or a witness and you kind of are doing these same acts. The skills are kind of the same, but you are specifically trying to get that person to like, enter things into evidence because the result of the deposition is, is able to be used as evidence in a, a matter of litigation. Whether gotcha. In an investigation, you're just in an interview, you're just trying to find out what happened so that you can ultimately write up a summary and then uh, kind of produce the results of that summary, whether that's an recommendation to the company itself, or it might be something that you're doing, say on behalf of the government, there are situations where say the DOJ is, looking at your client, they might investigate, they might prosecute. Uh, they kind of want the company to do the hard work for them. So you do an investigation to then do something called a proffer to the DOJ. Here's what we found in our investigation. You know, please don't prosecute us or, you know, go easy on us or whatever wow. it is. And this is how the DOJ can conscript a private company to do all the work for them. It's, 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 a, it's a good move. That's actually, that's kind of fascinating. So how, how far did you get into like that work? How deep did you get into the, the suits and the, the reading and the, like, yeah. you know, the, the interviewing before you decided, fuck all this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, that was the part I liked the most. Um, you know, I, you know, so I started doing investigations and I was doing also standard litigation, um, simultaneously, but you know, third, fourth year, I started kind of playing 
a leading role in some of these investigations. A lot of times you're doing international work. So I got to say, go to Vietnam and kind of do an investigation for a big bank there. Wow. Um, and you go in, you interview people. There's these weird, you know, situations because you're, you actually literally are like, if you're doing it on site, like the suits are here, like coming in, collecting documents, interviewing people, like people are nervous. You have to, uh, if, if you want to, you have to lay the right environment for what you're trying to do. Yeah. But yeah. You know, I, I, by my sixth year, I was leading investigations and, and it was fun, but you know, there's the nature of big law firms, you know, you can't beat the machine. And, uh, uh, the, there is like when you have to start to think about, well, how are you going to make a partner? And if you're not going to make partner. You should start to think about your exit. Um, and yeah, yeah that's, that's the part I had, I never had any attention on being a law firm partner. So, and that's kind of the, the moment of marriage, right? That's the, the nuptials, yeah. if yes. you will, you're kind of not <laughs> coming back after that, right? Like you, cause the way the partnership works. And as you can tell, I'm an idiot when it comes to all this, I've known nothing, but you have to buy into the partnership, right? It's basically like an investment in you most do, cases that you, I would say that's the least of your worries. And in the specific context of this type of law firm and not all law firms work this way, but the, the big multinational law firms do all work this way. Um, you, it, it's, you have to kind of make partner and there's a whole process. There is a track that you need to be placed on. Oh, and then hence you, the term yes. partner track. Yes. That's an actual thing. Okay. <laughs> and you need to follow many steps and you know, they'll say, they might say there's a eight year partnership track um, and your sixth year. And so if you have to be on the track, but you know, before that you advance every year, you get a raise every year, your third year, your fourth year, your fifth year, all that stuff is lockstep. When you're on the track, if you haven't done the things to become the next, to take the next step in the track, mm -hmm. you either, you have to get dropped. You have to say, repeat your seventh year. It's like getting held back. In school oh, like that. Um, and is and, that like revenue based goals? Is it like, like, or is it like truly going and doing new jobs? So you understand the whole firm or the cynical version of is that it's hours, it's purely hours based. Yeah. Um, what the firm would tell you, it's a, a holistic combination of many things. Oh, it's already the, bullshit based on just the, how you started that. It's a holistic combination. Yeah. Okay. So billable hours and aging yes. yourself like Obama in eight years basically is what you're telling yeah, me. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And like being a, being a partner is a different job than being an associate. So you have to, um, uh, you have to show that you can get clients, that you can attract clients, that you can uh, build a book of business. And that's something that essentially you don't do at all as, as an associate. As, a, as an associate, you grind away and you do high quality work and you make the partners look good and that's your job. Um, but then you have to kind of do this different job, um, which is generating business, um, which partially can be about doing good work, but uh, it's also about kind of like, the other side of it, the, uh, the connections, the networking, um, it must be a know, bizarre shift. Things. And also it makes sense that a lot of folks don't want to, like, if you're an associate and you really appreciate that grind or not appreciate that grind, but it, like enjoy it, you know, and you yeah. like the investigations and whatnot. And suddenly you got to pivot into like, you know, I'm a glorified salesperson kind of a thing. Right. Plus like a, you know, right. a real job and whatnot. But like, that seems like a, big shift and even just like the personality that you would expect the person to have. Yeah. And there are, I mean, there are different ways in which firms kind of make this happen. And if it, what they really want is that they want to see that you have the potential to become that person. That's they're fair. doing some assessment 
of that, you wouldn't necessarily need to have some large book to become um, a partner. Um, but what I, my kind of thought is that you really, really need to want to do that job if, yeah. if you kind of want to embark on this. And yeah. because of the nature of the track, not everyone really internalizes it. You are just kind of, you're still on it. That's what you're doing. That's what you're supposed to do. There's an idea of, you know, making a lot of money at, at the end of this. And you kind of, you keep going because, you know, what else would you do for people yeah. who really crave that? It's, you know, go do it. Like, um, but I would say a lot of people do it without necessarily craving it because it's what they're supposed to do. Yeah. And the ability to say I'm on partner track at a happy hour, or, you know, <laughs> something like that. Like I, I can see, I can see a certain individual potentially appreciating that kind of a vibe and you I know, can see you not, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the type of person who would say that, probably is the type of person who wants to be partner and, and would be good at partner. I find it less the, the other people, it's less that they want to be able to say that and more that this is all they've really known. And this is just what you do. And I'm a big believer in kind of your environment driving the things that you do. And you tend to know, a lot of other, all of the other people, you know, are lawyers and a lot of them are working also at big law firms. And, uh, this is, you're just kind of like, you know, you're kind of born into it, so to yeah. speak. C1B1 yeah. kind of yeah. vibe. Mm -hmm. That makes mm -hmm. sense. So it sounds like, I mean, six years or whatever, six years. Yeah. Yeah. Damn. You must've learned some, some things that you're applying today. I would think of that course. there are some lessons yeah. there that have stuck with you significantly. Yeah. And like, I don't know. I'm like, uh, I, it probably doesn't sound like it, but on balance, I'm pretty positive about my <laughs> law firm. No, it, it does like, sound like it. I think there's uh, yeah. just innately, there's innately things about the legal realm that yeah. are hard not to talk shit on, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. everything you've said about your law career is pretty positive. Everything you've said about the firm that I've ever heard on and off the record has been positive. Yeah, totally. So yeah. And also like I make way more lawyer jokes than you. I think you're like, <laughs> you, you, you know, you, you still refer to yourself as a lawyer when it's helpful. Yeah, you know, yeah, you're, exactly. you're not like running away from exactly. the moniker or anything. I mean, it's a part of who you are. Totally. So a great thing about, you know, working at a big law firm like that is you get high end work. Um, and you get thrown into, especially if you're able to navigate that world well, you get to learn a lot from some very, very, very good lawyers. And um, certainly the training kind of sticks with you, the attention to detail, um, the, the, kind of the, the strategy and the, the ability to think in kind of a big way using the kind of legal precedent and, and kind of being able to navigate those things. What it probably doesn't teach you super well is how to like think in more uncertain areas and how to, how to navigate um, worlds that I, I now live in that aren't, aren't as say filled with precedent and like narrow and very adept interpretations of precedent. But if you enter into say a new industry where things are very uncertain, you know, it doesn't, the training necessarily uh, doesn't prepare you to think differently, um, think really outside of the box. You're really not incentivized to. That's really interesting because one of the things that I've been told over and over and over again is that law school, and maybe it's less about like actually becoming a lawyer, but especially law school 
teaches you how to think. Yes. That's like the thing that everybody tells me is, you yes. know, well, you're thinking from first principles, you're based on, yeah. but is that because of the fact that there is precedent, there is data, and you're able to go back to first principles that have kind of been set in fucking stone versus like, you know, you and I both are diving yeah. down the web three rabbit hole and <laughs> yeah. there's not a lot of precedent there. Is that kind of, is that kind of the idea? Yeah. Law, uh, law school does lean towards that teaches you how to think um, mode of teaching in that like your first year's classes are all going to go back to cases from the 1800s and you're, you're learning how to apply how er the earliest versions of precedent came to be. Mm -hmm. And then they're throwing kind of, novel prompts at you and you need to understand how to solve problems, right? Law school teaches you very little about like the practicing of, of like cases, right? Um, gotcha. uh, okay. again, and this is like, it's, it's a, it's a generalization. Not all law schools are the same. There are certain law schools that are designed to do that, but for the most part, um, yeah, they're trying to kind of, you know, teach you how to think. And, uh, that's different from like, the law firm training because the law school is kind of explicitly saying, well, you'll go work for a law firm and they'll kind of train you on, on like civil procedure and, and, and things like that. You have a civil procedure class, but you know, on literal aspects of like, this is what you need to do during a case, you know, that's what the law firms are for. And this is the model that the legal system has kind of um, decided on. So like that, the theory, the theory kind of things that, you learn in law school do help if you are say like you're going to a company and a company is in a certain environment. We can get to get to that, but uh, it's less about like that is like less even theory than more just like practical risk assessment mm -hmm. that you might do say at a company as opposed to a law firm that law firm lawyers oftentimes are not very good at. They can tell you like, well, this action has this risk and this action has this other risk and they're probably going to index on the ne more negative like interpretations of that risk because that's what you're incentivized to do. Um, but if you are kind of at a company trying, trying to decide what to do, there is an element of risk assessment where like what's the probability of XYZ happening or ABC happening and what's the most, th and how does that cost benefit analysis reflect on our decision making. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm so curious now. What's it like for you to pick a lawyer now? Or like to work yeah. with a lawyer now? Yes. Like do you know too much? Or are you like, ah, oh, I would have handled that differently? Or like or do you just like let them do their thing? I feel like you would have a lot of opinions. I do. I mean, uh there are you, you have to find the people who are gonna do the thing that you want. Right. Yeah. Um I've always found that when you're using an outside counsel, when you're using a lawyer, you want to make sure that you are asking very specific things. Um, going to a lawyer, lawyers often get asked to do these like run to ground exercises, kind of like a What's large, that mean? like, what do I do? Like, how do I? Oh God, like that seems like a terrible <laughs> question for a lawyer. <laughs> what do I do? Uh, you should probably pay me uh, about 80 billable yeah. hours for this week. And then I'll yes. tell you in three more weeks after I do that to you three more times. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, what are the, I, I want to say, let's use an example. I, I want to do, I want to build a company that does X. What are the kind of risks involved? Um, and, and how should I do 
what you know y and z things i'm stressed I do to do out just here like right? that seems like the and worst the, way to use a lawyer you're, you're gonna but like I've, I've i've answered so many of these questions the types of things like you're giving someone like a huge grid of like here's okay if it goes this way here are all the risks if it goes another way here are some other risks and it's just not a very good way to use a lawyer and, and they're not equipped really to give you very definitive answers on things or incentivized to, right? Yes. I mean, it's a yes. CYA business at the end of yes. the day, you cover your ass for the right. long term. So what you want is to guide a lawyer to understand your business very deeply, which is why it helps to um, have experts in specific things. And then you get them up to speed on your business and have them help you. Um, so like for me, I always want to use lawyers for what they're really good at. Lots of lawyers are good at great many things, but usually they have like a zone and that's their thing. And that's the thing that they can do in their sleep. And that's the thing where they know the law off the top of their head. And that's what you want to use that lawyer for. Um, I, if I have a specific regulatory question, I want a lawyer that really knows that regulatory area because that's what they concentrate on. Like that's what they read casually the news for when they, when they, when they wake up, they're yeah. up to speed on, on the things. And so you have an employment litigation case, you want an employment litigation lawyer. Um, if you have a licensing question, you want a lawyer that does licensing. Um, and this feels yeah. very obvious, but also feels like maybe advice that a lot of founders aren't getting. It's, it's actually kind of hard to do, right? You are, you're a founder, you use a firm, probably the first law firm that you interact with is the venture. If you're, especially if you're a founder of a venture backed company, mm -hmm. you, there's one of like five law firms that you're probably going to go with. Like you're probably going with Goodwin, Cooley, Gunderson, yeah. Wilson. Yeah. Um, uh, one of those folks. And uh, if you yeah. left, or you're going to them like, after yeah. you go to somebody else to fix the <laughs> bullshit cap yes. table math. Yes. Yeah. But, and that's because that's the easiest thing to do, right? Those are the names that people know that do do that thing. And if you yeah. are following my advice, you want someone to help you build your cap table and do investor stuff. Like those are the people that that's what, they do. They're also the most expensive versions of that. And so what I tend to really prefer to do is find the person doing at a boutique firm that used to work at one of those places and uh, kind of got that training, but specializes it, but on a smaller scale and is, is, is much more efficient and cost-effective. But it is like actually difficult to find those, those people. It, it, it requires work and then you have to vet them and make sure that, uh, you know, there's, you know, you just hire that firm. They're kind of coming pre-vetted for you, right? Yeah. Um, um, so it, it, it can be hard to do. But then the other thing is, and this is kind of the trap. Those are big firms. They have everything. Full service. They right? got everything. <laughs> oh, you need, a, you need a back yeah. massage. You need an IP lawsuit. And we're here for you. Yes. And so now you're being guided to all of their people. And yeah, they have people who, you know, this person does IP and this person does litigation and, and uh, <laughs> all of those things. But now you're kind of being guided to there. You don't, you might be getting the C player in, in, in litigation. Um, and you know, these, these firms all have high quality vetting processes, but you know, I generally prefer to like, I, you know, I, I have like six law firms that work for me and they all do different specific things. And, uh, uh, it's nice if you can get them all in one place, but that's usually not the best way to do it. Yeah. Is that, I mean, this almost feels like a competitive advantage to a certain degree. Is I, like, now I want to know your set of lawyers because of like the set of qualifications and like filters that you had on picking the lawyers. It sounds like you need a lawyer 
to pick the lawyers. You might. Um, and, you know, uh, honestly, I'm still navigating this world. There are some folks that have, uh, that are really good with really deep Rolodexes of, of really good people. And, and you know, uh, uh, leveraging them is key. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm in the process of building that. And uh, what I personally really like is hiring lawyers who are really curious and interested in their specific subject area. And, um, you know, if you're curious and interested about something, you're much more likely to uh, want to keep up with it and you'll kind of be a better performer at it. And uh, if you can kind of nail that, you know, you have someone who can learn your business and really help you think strategically. Mm -hmm. And kind of that is to me kind of the key unlock whenever I'm talking to say a lawyer who's going from a law firm to in-house, I always say you kind of have to shift your brain into this strategic version of thinking rather than risk management kind of mm-hmm. version of thinking. Yeah. And it takes, it takes time. It certainly took me time it, and it takes everyone time, but if you can do it effectively, it is very powerful. Very. So you run a group of like, or maybe it's not a group is not the right term. I think you said syndicate of lawyers, yeah. right? Tell yeah. me more about that. I don't think I know you, you do so much. I can't go that <laughs> deep on all of it. So it seems it like is, a, it is part syndicate and uh, you know, syndicates are, are pretty much, you know, uh, are, are out there and the lexicon angel list has really helped proliferate, but yeah. uh, the, you know, like the bad guys in, in mission impossible six were called the syndicate. And uh, it, it, it always sounds it's got somewhat, some mafia somewhat, vibes. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely got some mafia vibes. Some, somewhat, somewhat. Yeah. Um, not as much as stripe these days, um, but yeah. you know, <laughs> shout out to the, to the mob bosses. Shout out to the um, mob. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, so if then ventures is a, Legal community is also a venture syndicate of attorneys, of policy folks, of operators who have been in regulated spaces. And kind of, you know, what we do is a little bit about what we just kind of talked about. And it's that we help founders think strategically um, with respect to regulatory strategy, with respect to product strategy. Um, you know, the idea is that myself and and all of everyone else in the community, the hive mind that is, can help founders find those kind of really key lawyers that can help them, um, that can give, let's say we don't necessarily give legal advice, but we give strategy advice with respect to certain regulations or even policy. You know, I, I think that policy and law, especially in emerging environments um, like crypto, like cannabis, it, it really goes hand in hand and having really strong policy teams or chops or providers is, is extremely helpful. And so, you know, the community is one, a, a, you know, a hive mind, like I said, that helps founders. We also help each other, um, you know, um, share information. How many folks is it? How many, what, how many people? I would say we have about mm, 45, 50 active members, like any community, we probably have like a hundred plus members and, you know, maybe somewhat less than half of those are like really active, but, um, uh, yeah, you know, and it started with, mostly tech, all the tech lawyers that I know. Um, many of them, you know, used to work at Latham and Watkins, uh, at some point with me, but, uh, you know, we've really expanded that, um, as I've kind of like, we've grown in the space and people become interested in not just being able to kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, talk to and help founders, but like I was mentioning, help each other. Um, and 
have conversations. One thing that really struck me when I was starting this was I spent a lot of time around lawyers and uh, I had, when I was getting deeper into kind of FinTech and spending more time with kind of, you know, tech people, operators, as, as some might say, um, there is a kind of different tone when it comes to sharing information and when it comes to kind of community. Um, when I started getting into FinTech, I, I ended up in like seven different FinTech Slack channels um, of just people having conversations and people sharing information and people asking questions um, and people referring other people to other people and really like networking in the law, especially like, you know, pre-pandemic was really nothing like that. Um, you know, there's like one group that has like a listserv that, you know, people ask questions and, and people respond, but there wasn't really much community in that sense, in, in, in the way that kind of founders, operators kind of leverage community. Yeah. And I really thought that, well, why not? Lawyers kind of made default to, it may just be like, because none of them use Slack, but <laughs> I can kind of get them into Slack, but also yeah. they kind of default to, well, I can't talk about the stuff that I do, you know, that's privileged, but we're not talking about sharing privileged information. We're talking about um, how you might think about problems or how you can best um, serve clients or navigate issues even, as most of these folks are in-house attorneys. Um, so, you know, talk just talk about how we approach um, problems, issues, sets in our jobs um, and, and in working with other non-lawyers. And that's probably the biggest difference between being at a law firm and being in-house. When you're in-house, you mostly work with non-lawyers. How far, I mean, how far outside of financial technology does that group go? This seems like a, a keystone to, to solving many uh, early stage. <laughs> pro well, I mean, especially in fintech, but it, startups in general, I mean, it's, you know, especially if you're going enterprise, even if you're not going enterprise and you're going B2C, just understanding are my terms and services actually covering my ass? Are they accurate? You know, it's right. like all the, you know, all of our terms and conditions, terms and services. Jesus, it's Wednesday on fintech week. <laughs> I don't have words. Um, Terms of service. Terms of service. Yes. That's what I was yeah. trying to say. Thank you, sir. Yes, ending with me over here. Yeah. Um, but it, it just seems it seems like, you know, if I was starting a company, you are a group I would probably want to have a conversation with pretty early on. So how how far I mean, number one, if fintech founders are interested, kind of how yeah. do they go about like getting involved or getting yeah. in touch with you? I'm sure you don't do every deal, but for sure how do they do that. And how far outside of fintech do you go? Yeah. So certainly this started in fintech and fintech was kind of what I know. Um, and, um, you know, it's also, there's, there's other things that I know like cannabis and, uh, uh, everything's fintech. And, and cannabis and is fintech. Three. Yes. <laughs> and, and frankly, like those are the tenors in which I know those other things as well. So, um, but yeah, I mean, just like, first off, if anyone wants to, you know, reach out, they can shoot me an email, David at if then dot VC. Um, and you know, the, if then name, it's like, it's like law and technology um, it, it, intersecting. It's, it's kind of, you know, these conditional uh, statements are, are one commonality that engineers and lawyers have together. Yeah, I was pretty shocked that that didn't already exist. Like it's a <laughs> damn good venture name. I mean, it's a cool name for a whatever, but it's a really good I name for a venture firm. Just because of the name, you know, you start with the name and you, you, you go there just like the LSAT, uh, uh, you know. 
That's how for fintech sake started. I was just walking. I was just, you know, it just slipped out of my mouth. (laughs) This is a pot. That's what it is. That's, I don't want to go to therapy. I should start a podcast. Uh, That's how it all started. Zach's will do anything. Zach's will do anything. Yeah. I believe it's white men, but but sure. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I prefer Zach's. That's a lot. That's a much funner group. Um, Okay. So it seems like that group could help solve a lot of the things we were talking about earlier, but I want to be like at least halfway cognizant of time and talk about some of the things we thought sure. we were going to talk yeah. about. <laughs> so tell me about like that trend about kind of like you hinted at yes. it earlier, but that transition was the next steppies. Yes. So okay. I left Latham after six years and I went to work at a cannabis delivery technology company called ease. Um, ease at the time was, you know, is still based in California. Um, uh, and ease is a delivery company like DoorDash or Uber Eats for, um, cannabis. In fact, I I believe it was founded at the peak of when you could actually go just say Uber for blank and like get a term sheet. Ah, the good old days, (laughs) the good old days. And you know, Uber for cannabis, that's a great sell. Now it's just for Um, web three. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so, you know, uh, ease had, was able to develop a really great brand in California and, um, in the, in the medical market. And I joined in the beginning of 2018, which was when California had, uh, turned on the recreational market that was voted in by the public in 2016. Um, the one issue with it was that, you know, in November, 2016, the public voted in, uh, recreational uh, yeah. and We did something else in November, 2016 though, didn't we? <laughs> Fuck. Talk about that. That's, that's for a different podcast. All right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but there's some overlap there that I could imagine maybe impacted some things and maybe not in California, um, Yeah, but yeah. Oy vey. Less, anyways, less in California. Yeah. Carry um, on the, uh, the Cheeto is somewhere <laughs> in this town roaming around. So the state had a mandate to launch the recreational market by January of 2018. The state, you know, bless their hearts, uh, as they tried, <laughs> they weren't, they, they, they weren't very efficient with their rulemaking. Uh, like, you know, we're all shocked. Yeah. <laughs> so they ended up needing to, uh, release, a, a a successive set of quote emergency regulations, um, because they needed to have something in it and it wasn't done. The problem with releasing these emergency regulation regulations, which by their definition must be, um, Temporary. They are only allowed to be in place for six months. Excuse me. And what that did was invited a lot of lobbying. Um, And uh, not that they really needed an invitation, but there there was an invitation. And so we, you know, we kind of ended up in these big lobbying, these like high speed lobbying battles to mold the regs as benefited business models. And there was a dynamic, there were many different dynamics at play, but the one most relevant to us at ease was kind of delivery versus brick and mortar Mm -hmm. and brick and mortar players, um, uh, including many of them being kind of well entrenched from having been in the medical market for a very long time um, and well-connected were making a lot of moves to try to prevent delivery from being a thing as much as possible. Why? Why? Uh, because that wasn't their business. And there was Ease, a venture-backed tech business that was kind of- But not a know, manufacturer, not a seller of products, right? Um, yes, but there are some dynamics of the model. Like if you are a brick and mortar store and you don't have a kind of delivery operation, a the delivery tech company, co- 
coming in margins. Um, is this is a margin not, conversation? Particularly good for you. Yeah. And, okay. You know, um, uh, I would think it yeah. would grow the pie. Like I would think of it as something that would like generically grow the GDP of like cannabis. It would make it, especially in the medical situation. Like there's a lot of people that legitimately probably can't leave right. their house. Well, absolutely. And there's real reasons for that. But I would think in a, in a recreational market at that, I mean, liquor, I feel like liquor stores are not anti DoorDash delivery or what, you know, it's just like, I don't know. It feels maybe, yeah, maybe I, I'm just I, like I, shocked I, by short sightedness and right. I shouldn't be, I but might, I might say that, uh, if you've kind of heard stories about DoorDash and the margins that it like lifts off of. Yeah. Yeah. Spots. That's what I was wondering. Uh, yeah, it's like, is yeah. it kind of it, not great for the well, see, business well, owner? The thing is, is that Ease's business model was quite a bit different despite like the experience being like DoorDash for cannabis. Um, it was the, the model was actually quite different. And part of that was because of regulation. Um, in California, you, ha you are required, like a delivery employee must be an employee of a licensed retailer in order to deliver cannabis. So okay. The whole gig economy, um, you know, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll just state that as neutrally as possible. Yeah. Like model, uh, was outlawed in, in cannabis, just bottom line. And so, hmm. um, that, created a bit of a, I mean, I think that was partially designed to help protect those retailers. Um, also to help make sure that it was creating like, you know, full-time jobs um, and ease existed in that, in that framework, in that paradigm. But I think ultimately, you know, those brick and mortar stores just wanted people to come into their stores and the existence of delivery, um, you know, they saw as uh, against that, you know, going, going into like, I think this might grow the pie, et cetera. I think that's just like, People aren't even getting to that point in the like. Yeah. I, now and, and, and I sound like Facebook's lawyers or something. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's going to be better for the world. Just give it 10 years. I swear it's going to be great. Yeah. I mean, it might, it might not. You know, people will take different interpretations. And you brought up something that was kind of key to Easy's side of the positioning. There are people that can't go into the stores, there are medical patients that don't have easy access to these stores. There are also, significant swaths of like cannabis deserts, like where there is, where there isn't a store yeah. anywhere around and delivery was very helpful for access. And so that was always the message, um, from ease. Uh, and it, when I talk about the message, ease had a number of, uh, let's say government relations folks that uh, we brought on around, <laughs> <laughs> around, around the time when I joined and they were very, very good. We had a team, um, of, ex lifters um, and uh, uh, with a combination of some folks from Uber. And like, frankly, they were just really good. They understood how to message these things. And like, frankly, ease before, like we had been brought in in the medical market had very specifically developed a, a, a very bad reputation amongst the, amongst a, in a very kind of entrenched cannabis community. Gotcha. Um, and okay. so, uh, uh, you know, this is kind of a key thing, like having a policy strategy, a communication strategy um, early. Uh, that's not simply like arrogance yeah. <laughs> um, is, a, is a good idea for any company, especially a company kind yeah. of um, trying to do an innovative thing in, in, in any space. And that's something I very much learned from all the kind of uh, politically oriented folks that we, that we had on, on, on our team and why I talk about policy and law, and legal strategy really going hand in hand. Um, I think that's a, a key lesson for anyone uh, to learn. 
very key lesson for anyone to learn. And also just like fucking hiring people that have done it before and the, the DoorDash yes. stuff and what, I mean, granted it's entirely different, but at the same time I could see enough overlap that you would definitely save yourself some years. For sure. The high end things are the same. Like, a tech company, like realizing, Hey, we need to, we need to make some messaging. The messaging should not be coming from the tech company, right? Like, uh, uh, um, <laughs> nobody is sympathetic to a venture backed tech company, nor should they be. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, so who is our existence helping? Um, is it helping folks who want access? They need to be the ones doing the messaging, which yeah. means you need to put in efforts in their community to have them understand where you're coming from and how you can help them and why they should help you. Um, so part of policy is also having a community team that is engaging with people and doing things for them and like actually approaching them in a genuine way so that you can be genuine so that your messaging is genuine. Um, and, uh, you know, those, those types of things, like it takes money, it takes time, it takes effort, it takes groundwork. Um, uh, Sorry, fucking slack. Um, so was that part of the, I mean, he's, as you said, you know, you, the, there was a decent amount of venture capital that flowed into that company. Yeah, uh, for sure. And, and still is, I mean, it's, it doesn't seem like things have slowed down by any means. Was part of the reason for that raise, this was part of the reason, or not for that raise, but right, part of right, the reason right. that so much capital has flowed in, like the product seems to have worked quite well. We'll get into sure. you know, the stable coin stuff or whatever. Um, but the government relations people and whatnot, lobbyists, whatever you want to call them, um, they don't, they don't sound cheap. And also they you have to arm them with a budget after you pay them too. Yes, right. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that <clears throat> that is the kind of thing that a venture backed company is good at because it is extremely capital intensive. And most players in the cannabis industry don't have that kind of, uh, kind of fuel to, to burn in, in order to kind of help shape the industry. Um, that said, you know, um, you know, he's won some battles. He's lost some battles in, 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 in all of these fronts as, 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 as things go, but you know, you're right. There is, uh, cannabis was at an interesting place, you know, like we're seeing in crypto maybe now, but to a lesser scale, like it had its own hype cycles. And so, a lot of stuff is just hype cycles. Um, <laughs> a lot of stuff is hype cycles. Um, very true. It's turned out that cannabis is a very difficult business and a hard business to make money in, in large part because of the obstacles that we've created for it. Um, and by we, I mean the government and uh, uh, our, our political system that keeps the industry illegal at a federal level. And yeah. there are a number of needless obstacles um, like a tax provision called 280E that prevents um, any business who who's kind of uh, who engages in illegal activity from deducting business expenses on their tax returns on their federal tax returns, which means that any cannabis business cannot deduct uh, cannot take like operational deductions on their tax returns. Is it literally phrased as? any company that is operating elite, like what, why the fuck do you write a law that says <laughs> if you're breaking the law, then this is how you do your tax. Like, what are you right. talking about? That exists. You know, it's because the IRS, <laughs> the IRS still wants your taxes regardless of you doing crimes. Um, so it's like uh, El Chapo, uh, by the way, we do need you to file, but no, you yeah. can't deduct yes. the tunnel 
that you dug to get out of jail. That's what he was like. What? Correct. It, I, what? <laughs> <laughs> I thought illegal shit was just illegal. I thought that's how yeah. we did this. And um, you know, I'm, I don't have all the exact history of this tax provision and, and how much it has to do specifically with marijuana businesses, but uh, it is an incredible burden on every business. On top of that, you know, the narrative for the politicians in order to legalize cannabis in various ways has always been, well, legalize it and tax it. Um, you know, as if that's the only reason to, um, I mean, dude, at this this uh, point, uh, I say that like at this point I say, I'm so fucking past all this federal, I mean, it just got legalized in Missouri. I have my medical card in Missouri. I've actually never said that on this podcast before, (laughs) but here we are. Um, I'll I'll say I have consumed cannabis before. Holy Uh, shit. (laughs) Shock. Somebody that worked at ease and actually has a good time in life and has a wonderful smile and is fun to Uh, be around has uh, consumed cannabis. I'm shocked. Um, it's like, what? I'm just, I'm so, stuck. Well, so I'm here's, stuck, here's, David. <laughs> here's the thing about legalize it and tax it. People have interpreted it to mean tax the shit out of it. Um, and uh, well, let me tell you, if there's a whole industry that you are taxing the shit out of, it's going to be pretty hard for any of those businesses to actually make money. And then you stack on the 280E thing on top of that, where you, you're not able to take deductions. Um, and you know, a terrible business to be in very quickly, throw in other needless obstacles, like an extremely restrictive regulatory regime and just how you can operate in general. And then you have things like, Oh, it's extremely hard to get a bank account. Um, yeah. Oh, you can't take payments from consumers via, you know, the traditional payment rails. Um, and then, and, and you put all that together and then you kind of position this as, well, we will, kind of make this a business for small business owners. Um, you know, minorities who have been impacted on the war on drugs. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll have all these social equity programs, all of these things I think necessary. Um, uh, uh, but at the same time, you give these folks these things, you put these provisions in place and you choke the light out of life out, out of the industry at the same time. Um, you know, the opportunity that you're providing is, is a very, uh, narrow one when it's so difficult to actually, you know, make money. And so what that means is that the only people who can make money, well, not even make money, the people who can grow their businesses are the people who can burn money. Um, namely very, very large corporations or venture capital backed businesses. And as we know, minorities, small business owners, people who have been impacted by the war on drugs, usually not the kind of avatars of choice for the folks in, in, in those industries. So it's a, it's a difficult, it's a difficult industry uh, to be in. And it's a, it's a get out of bed and shoot yourself in the foot four times before you get to the door kind of vibe too, of like, no wonder the black market continues to thrive. You know, no, nobody has deleted their drug dealers number. Sorry, everyone. Like, you know, we still have signal on our phone and it's not because we're Joe Rogan. (laughs) Like it, you know, there's reason there's, there's many reasons to have signal on your phone. Don't trust anyone, but you know, there's specific reasons for that. And it's like, well, no wonder. I mean, if we actually want to incentivize this moving into more of a, you know, light in moving the whole thing into light after being a black market, like how, how onerous do we want to make it? You know, it's, it's mind boggling. Yeah. And so, you know, like where I really kind of came in and learned a lot was at, at at ease. I transitioned out of the kind of compliance 
product council role that I was in to take on payments and banking. And um, that's kind of, you know, something I, I, I really took to as, especially when I really started doing it, something of an very much unsolved issue in cannabis. Um, yeah. uh, both, you know, I, I look at payments and banking separately and they're in kind of different places in their progression. And when Colorado and Washington legalized, like uh, it was like a very popular, like 60 minute style, like segment talking about like all the cash that's floating around in the cannabis industry. Um, they don't have bank accounts. They're not allowed to get bank accounts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so it creates this heavy risk of operating in these cash intensive ways because like that now you're making yourself a target. The legal system is making these cannabis companies targets. And, you know, over time, more, you know, uh, uh, one thing happened is that like the Obama administration um, kind of put out a couple of guidelines that allowed, say, banks, if they followed something called the Cole Memo and the Cole Memo priorities, that if you are in a state where the state has legalized cannabis and the businesses are following these rules, uh, the state regulations, I should say, along with the Cold Memo priorities, which are things like, you know, it's not, there's no interstate traffic, it's not flowing to criminals, it's not going into the illicit market, it's not being sold to kids, um, and, and, and a few other things that are all generally going to be baked into state regs yeah, anyway. Sure. Um, that FinCEN says, per their BSA, bank secrecy, per the Bank Secrecy Act, which governs uh, how banks report into the federal government, including reporting suspicious activity, um, that banks can bank the industry and that, you know, the federal government probably won't do anything to them. That's, that's really like, uh, <laughs> that's really as best as, as best as they get. And like, they really never have. Right. Um, but you know, that doesn't give banks really conservatives as they are that much comfort to say, okay, I'm going to one, take on all the extra compliance burdens that are uh, at play in order to bank this industry, including hiring a bunch of people, learning a lot about the industry, being able to vet the businesses, both on, on an initial basis and on an ongoing basis. And then having to justify everything that I'm doing with my regulator, who also knows nothing about cannabis, right. but, uh, uh, is now, you know, so they're, they're going to look at me differently. Um, and then on top of that, I have like, a loose assurance from one administration that they're not going to do anything. But let's say a guy named Jeff Sessions becomes. That's what I was going to ask about was that little troll. That's who exactly that little old white piece of shit. Um, sorry. People are learning more about me here. Um, but yeah, that, and the, and then it, what happens in four years after that? And then yes. what happens in four years after that to your yes. point, right? Yes. Yes. So it's difficult. You know, banks are like, well, I'm not going out on a limb for, for all this, but slowly, but surely, you know, credit unions were kind of the first financial institutions to start to take up the mantle, particularly ones specifically located in communities that had cannabis activity going on and that they were trying to foster, you know, um, cannabis businesses. Uh, we haven't really, we haven't found like the Francisco Suarez of <laughs> cannabis. Um, but, uh, you know, it's kind of, who do you think that should be? That's actually uh, everything that you're describing is yeah. hilarious because it's like, everything that bankers are feeling about crypto right now and right. You solved this problem with crypto. So I want to come back yeah. to that in a second, <laughs> but who should be the Francisco Suarez? It definitely should not be someone with hair beyond their shoulders. It def- <laughs> or I mean, unless it's a female, which is totally right, fair. Right, right. Um, but I was thinking of like a different version yeah, of Francisco yeah. and it's like, that's, 
I almost like, should they really be that regular of a cannabis user? You know, it's like, there's such a stigma in the culture to it still where it's like, Oh, he's just high or, you know, it's, it seems like a very tough individual to find. Yeah. And certainly politicians have somewhat uh, in, in various places have somewhat kind of taken up the mantle and said, we want to support these businesses. Yeah. Um, you know, no one, I would say has like made it their brand in the way that the, the mayor of Miami has made, you know, like tech, he's done well, uh, he's- you know, his, his whole brand. And I think, I think his name is Francis. I don't know. I called him Francisco. I don't know if that's, Oh, is it Francis? Name, I don't know. Yeah. So I, <laughs> let me just correct, correct that. But, I ain't uh, been to Miami since I was like 12, <laughs> so I really don't care, but whatever. Keith Raboy, if he's listening, he yeah, can, yeah, he yeah, can yeah, text yeah, us and yeah, correct yeah, us. Exactly. Yeah. Otherwise um, we don't care. <laughs> um, so, you know, certain cities have like, I think like my, my home city where I live, Oakland, California has, certainly been out there and wanting to support the industry and, uh, uh you know, Oakland's been like leading that. since the beginning. Yes, though. That's not course. even like, these are the places yeah. that have been doing it, yeah. you know, long before the recreational market was, uh, 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 live. Um, but yeah, you know, like, I think that, uh, when we talk about the banking system and kind of moving money, all banks have some like federal, like, uh, kind of angle to them. And so they're more weary over the last few years, more have been coming in. We have at least one kind of $50 billion bank banking the industry. We have a few $1 billion plus banks banking the industry. We're still mostly talking $100 million credit unions. And that's difficult to really support an entire industry from local credit unions and a couple of banks. Um, You know, but they're the ones that have actually done the work to say, yes, we're going to bank the industry. And so where we are today is that most cannabis businesses do have bank accounts and they can bank, but like they have to put in a, a, a shitload of work just to get the bank account um, and to maintain the bank account. I have, I have gotten bank accounts from many like cannabis entities and, you know, even the 15th time that I did it, like it still takes three plus weeks just to get wow. the, <laughs> just to get the account, like, uh, uh, and, and then maintaining it and maintaining those relationships. It's more burdens placed on the business. This from the, you know, kind of financial and money movement side. And that is, while that's alleviating, the big problem that you still have is that you can't take a payment from a consumer. Yeah. Let's uh, go there. Yeah. That's the, yes. that's, I think one of the most fascinating innovations that you've ever told me about that have come out of, you know, your team's head in your head uh, in a pretty interesting way. So as yeah. much as you can describe that flow of funds, I'd love to, yeah, love totally. to share it with uh, folks. And, and so, I mean, really that just kind of goes into, you know, the, in the talk that we did earlier this week, which is how can you help serve an underbanked industry um, and cannabis very much being an underbanked industry? Well, you know, uh, and this is something that I learned in, in 2019, but crypto is certainly positioned to help underbanked industries. Um, and you know, one thing that, uh, uh, crypto did, uh, or does is that it serves as a store of value and it serves as a means of payment. And so because it can do both of those things, uh, depending on, you know, what you're using and how you're using it, it does provide optionality for a business to say, I'm going to take a payment from a consumer via this, you know, crypto token, I can hold value in it. And with enough infrastructure, especially as more is being built now on and off ramps, I can convert those funds into actually, you know, dollars if, if, if that's kind of how I, how I choose to go. What is that like explaining that to a banker? 
Cause to me, <laughs> that makes a ton of sense. Yes. Like it, in terms of the flow of funds, in terms of the risk associated with each of those different pivots in and out of a coin or whatever, or out of a token. Um, but I've worked inside of a community bank before that was sub billion yes. and, you know, very sub Durbin. I don't, and we even explored some of the cannabis stuff back in the day and, you know, our concern, we never got far enough to even have this concern. Right. right? But this definitely would have been a concern. So is it that, is that part of the reason that there's only. Well, so like and- the thing is, it's like, if you're an institution, you have this idea, okay, I'm going to explore this cannabis thing. There's a, there's a whole host of things that I need to do in order to kind of be in the cannabis business. Now, someone else is saying, here is also crypto. There's a whole host of things you need to do to understand crypto. And so most people will naturally look at this as an additional problem. Whereas I would look at it to actually it's a solution. Um, and, you know, it's, but it's probably hard to learn two super brand new, great, great. Yeah, that's, that's as, why I'm at, so at curious. Once. Yeah. Um, but like one helps solve problems for the other. And, you know, kind of my thesis is that they actually both help solve problems for each other. And if you have the ability to, uh, to gain knowledge in both, like it's, uh, there, it's very powerful. So for example, what I would say is that if you're not allowed to use Visa and MasterCard rails as a retail business, there are other ways of taking a payment such as stable coins, a stable coin being a, 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 a crypto token that is, um, pegged to the U S dollars value, um, is the, you know, the same as, you know, a, a, a U.S. dollar, if it is a U.S. dollar stable coin. Um, and so it, you can take a payment via stable coin very easily, simply, and conveniently. It's, it's, uh, 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 if, you know, try it, it's sending money via stable coins is much easier than sending wires, for instance. Um, and if you can take a payment from a consumer digitally, now you've reduced your cash burden, handling cash costs money and, and it's, you know, it, it, it reduces your security. And then you're able to store the value in that token. Now there's infrastructure that exists for you to off ramp that, to exchange that into uh, US dollars. Um, from the bank side, when you're kind of hitting that point, if you are banking a business that is taking a payment from a, a, a cannabis transaction, you have to do all those compliance burdens, regardless of whether that money came in in cash, um, in credit card, or in crypto. Those compliance burdens are all the same. Um, you, you, you have, there's enhanced due diligence that you need to do. There's special um, act, suspicious activity reporting that you need to do. There's money laundering aspects that you need to do. Um, I think mo- most people would see, well, if, if that payment comes in crypto, you know, that like doubles, triples, et cetera, all, all of my risk. And, yeah. My uh, brain's going the exact opposite direction, but I still, yes, I well, still think that's so how bankers think. That, but, that is how a banker will think. Yeah. My contention is that the thing about crypto <laughs> is that it enables you to remove yourself from the banking system. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes, those banks would still have all of those same obligations, but you as a merchant, you simply are accepting say a cryptocurrency payment and you're holding some funds in crypto, well, that's removed from the banking system. That's a solution to your problems. If you have the ability to stand up, um, say the custody around how to hold that without right. a bank right. um, and, and, and handle those funds. And that's what you need service providers to provide you with sound and secure and most importantly, easy to use tools that would allow you to do that. Um, and my contention really isn't that 
you know, a cannabis business should totally remove itself from the banking system and go all in on crypto, though, while I personally think that would be incredibly interesting, I, I don't know that that's exactly what I would say to do, but, yeah. you know, I think there's an opportunity for people to strike the right blend of working in the banking system and working outside of the banking system. Mm. Um, and if you can strike that, you are actually able to have kind of the best of all worlds. Now there is one problem in that today there is not a lot of adoption for consumers paying for things with right. crypto. Right. And that is kind of a chasm that needs to be crossed. Uh, if this, if there's any point to doing all of that, um, if it will actually help your business. Right. And uh, this is where I think the cannabis side can actually help crypto in that cannabis businesses are difficult to run and it's hard to make money, but it's really not hard to sell product. Uh, the, Demand's uh, not uh, low. Yes. <laughs> people, people, and like, you know, the, there's, there's a lot of competition in the industry. There's yeah. price compression. There's, you know, go anywhere today on 420. There are massive discounts everywhere. Um, uh, uh, legal or yeah, illegal those, it seems <laughs> with how New York smells this morning. <laughs> I haven't even looked at say ease's site, but in my experience, it's, it's heavily, heavily discounted. Um, and you know, obviously those are not like high margin opportunities for the businesses. However, demand will be high. And if crypto stable coins, payments companies are really looking for this to, to kind of cross this chasm of people actually using crypto as a payments system and not as a means of speculation <laughs> for utility. Um, you uh, mean yeah. <laughs> utility in well, the world? Look, look, uh, speculating on leverage is a version of utility. I mean, as um, long as it goes up into the right, there's <laughs> a lot of utility. You're not wrong. That's fair. That's fair. But you know, Bitcoin, the white paper that started this whole thing, uh, it's a peer to peer electronic payment system. So like we have really not realized that vision yet. Part of it, I think, is because, like, actually, you know, as complicated as the Visa MasterCard setup is under the hood, for the user, it's pretty easy to use, and we're very much used to it. The infrastructure around us is built for it. Um, and for payments of crypto to be a thing, and the reason we would want it to be a thing, again, is, like, removal from kind of the uh, uh, reliance on gatekeepers who can shut out an entire industry. Uh, you know, the consumer, the consumer side kind of needs to be solved. But again, like crypto has a lot of advantages. You can do things like tying rewards into composable currency, um, loyalty plays. Um, but also like, you know, you can scan a QR code and it's really actually quite easy to make a payment. And today's consumer, I think really wants to be able to walk somewhere with their phone and pay for stuff. That's certainly what I do. A hundred percent. And every time in my experience, every time I take cash out of the ATM, I feel dirty. Like it's just gross. You know, it's just like, this is, yeah. we're living in an age where like, you know, especially we just released the, the web three white paper from money mm -hmm. 2020. Mm -hmm. Like I was not the one that wrote it, but I, you know, played a role in kind of mm -hmm. developing some of the pieces mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. And it is so weird to me to continuously have to take money out of a damn ATM in this yes. world. Like it's so confusing. Yes. Do you think that the digital identity and the KYC, like, cause there's, there's a higher bar for KYC. There's a higher bar for KYB right. in this space as well. Do you think that crypto also kind of innately solves that based on like the digital identity piece and how like a, especially like in a medical way, like a state system could tie into that ledger that could tie into 
the you know the the payment system or tie into that that dispensary's back end kind of thing like i feel like the biggest reason that we're scared of the aml piece of it is that we don't know it's the for me it's the cash it's like of course right. of course there's money laundering right. like we're taking cash out of an atm right. and we're putting it into it like it seems like the blockchain would actually solve a huge portion of that through the identity kyc kyb thing yeah you know take even taking out the cannabis uh Crypto has a lot of kind of, I think, things to resolve with, sure. with identity, with, with, with AML. And I think our society kind of has a lot of things to resolve with the concept of AML. Um, Hugely. <laughs> I don't think our industry gets it, man. Like, um, I don't yeah. think the average person even understands, oh, some money got laundered. What does that mean for the world? Like, right. how does that impact a human in right. Guadalajara or whatever? I don't think or, we- Or like the idea that, uh, well, banks reporting- on transactions based on the size of the transaction and reporting people's information is a reasonably a way effective way to combat um, money laundering or that the way to combat money laundering at all is to mo monitor everyone's transactions always. Um, yeah. And like, these are like higher level broad concepts that I think we need to. <laughs> and kind of philosophical too. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, but you know, looking at it in the, in the cannabis world, like cannabis has almost every regulated state has an extensive like track and trace regime for how product flows. And so, so, you know, it's designed to combat product from the regulated market flowing into the illicit market. Um, and, you know, there's, a, you know, if you talk to, um, you know, I would say if you read any blockchain like book from 2017, in there, along with like decentralized Uber and decentralized Airbnb would be like, you know, the track and trace inventory systems and, 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 and things like that. And that stuff kind of hasn't really played out, but uh, I would say that there are obvious kind of ways in which identity can play into these, you know, systems that we have that require identity. You generally need to do KYC to buy cannabis from an online retailer, just the way you do if you want to buy right. crypto at an exchange. Um, it just kind of seems to me like there's a larger, more obvious problem to solve. And it's just kind of simply this payments and banking piece that also like crypto right there can solve it right now. Um, it just kind of needs a little bit of will, some tools to make things easier. And, um, you know, I, 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 I think there's an issue in that, like, a lot of people may not clamor to move in to make big bets to solve this because you build an entire business around this and like, you know, Visa wakes up tomorrow and is like, all right, fine, we're cool with it. And then like, it's like problem solved. Um, but, yeah. uh, <laughs> um, but you know, there's opportunity there now. Yeah. And to your point, I mean, there is so much upside, yes. right? If you do this correctly with crypto, there's actually, it's a better world, yes. both regulatorily for the consumer, everybody. Right. So I think that's a great place to stop because we're only 22 <laughs> minutes over based on when we were actually supposed to stop talking. Uh, so tell the folks uh, the, well, one, where they can get all of you. And two, the question that I always end with is what can our listener base do to help you? So where can they find you and what can they do for you if they can find you? Yeah. I mean, people can <laughs> find me on, on, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, uh, on Twitter. My, my name is at David Ikenna. Uh, Ikenna is I-K-E-N-N-A. So at David Ikenna. You can also shoot me an email at uh, david at ifthen.vc. And, you know, uh, I'm, I'm happy to kind of chat with anyone about regulatory strategy um, in cannabis, in, 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 in crypto. 
Um, you know, I'm really kind of, I call myself a user experience maxi and uh, uh, maximalist. Um, you know, it's I, better I, than some other maxi situations. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and I really love thinking through the ways that we can use things like crypto to solve actual problems. And, you know, moving money in cannabis is a very, very real, real problem that crypto can solve. Gigantic problem. I appreciate you, man. We are going to have to check in down the line and see how the world is shaping up yeah. in like a year or so. This yeah. has been a blast, man. Absolutely. I appreciate your time. This is We've gotten to talk so much this week. We gotta, <laughs> let's do this again soon. Thank you, David. Yeah. Awesome, man. Thanks for joining this conversation, everybody. Hope you enjoyed our time with David E. Keena Adams. Jump into them, their show notes to learn more and find out more about David. Again, NeuroID, our supporter for this season, their website just got a little facelift. So jaunt on over there to neuro-id.com to take a look, understand more about what they do because it is truly groundbreaking and it took me a second to understand and that's why I'm so excited about it. But you can watch a demo before you actually request a demo. They have a new newsletter coming out. Go check out the website. Good things are happening there. Just go to neuro-id.com and don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and all the other things I'm supposed to remind you to do in your favorite podcast app as the incredibly responsible podcast host that I am. And if you want our weekly emails that are just kind of hilarious now, because I don't think I've sent one in like two months, go to forfintechsake.com and subscribe there. Until next time, stay healthy, keep your head high, and we're going to Vegas, baby. Here we come.